Well, thank you to those who've stayed. Yeah. Didn't all take the chance to do a runner at this point in the service. And thanks again to Luke for sharing. We're going to turn to God's Word. It's a lengthy reading. Uh, it's 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 9. We're going to read into verse 16 of chapter 10 and uh, just have a, a, a skim over that in, in the sermon. It's a lengthy reading, so I'll read reasonably quickly if I can. 1 Samuel 9. This is God's word to us. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bekorath, son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now the sons of Kish, or the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, Take one of the young men with you and arise, go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalisha, and they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. When they came to the land of Zip, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he's a man who has held in honor all that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, Here, I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer. For today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. As they went up to the hill, up the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? They answered, He is. Behold, he's just ahead of you. Hurry. He has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city. And as they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow, about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, 
Where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul answered, Am I not a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans in the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Then Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion I give you, of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, See, what was kept is set before you. Eat, because it is it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. And when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he, laid, and he lay down to sleep. Then, at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Up, that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to pass on before us, and when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemy." And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelda. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there, father, and come to the oak at Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gibeah Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with him and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, 
God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. Let's pause again and pray together. Father, as we turn to this portion of your ancient word, we pray that it would have power for us in these moments, in these days, to trust you, to be led by you, to serve you well in this world. Speak, Lord, and may we hear and respond with obedient hearts to your glory. Amen. The people of Israel, 3,000 or so years ago, like, like many churches today, were faced with a choice. Were they to be fashionable or faithful? Were they to follow God's plans and purposes in obedience to his word? Or were they uh, to attempt to wrestle their own destiny with their own hands? As you heard last Sunday evening, they had made their choice. They wanted a king to rule over them, a king of their own, so that they would be like all the other nations. And sometimes to teach us a valuable lesson, God will give us what we ask for. Even though uh, the consequences of our choice may not be good for us, we, through the uh, pain that it brings, will come to realize our Heavenly Father knows what is best. And if you have your your Bible open at at 1 Samuel 9 and just flick back to to 1 Samuel 1, you'll notice that there's a a new section beginning here. And there's that clear identifying mark. Back in chapter 1, verse 1, it says there was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophi. And we learn there of Elkanah, who was the father of Samuel. And so chapter 9 begins, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish. And we're introduced there to Saul's father. And in the opening chapters of the book, the focus was very much on Samuel and what he would do. Now we see that focus shifting uh, to rest upon Saul and what he will do. And behind these human storylines, the stories of these individuals, God is at work in the midst of his people. God uses men and women to fulfill his greater plans, to be his instruments, to see his kingdom come, his well-being done on earth, bringing glory to his name. Now, I don't know what your feeling was as we read through that rather lengthy passage. It's quite an unusual passage in some way because it has all kinds of seemingly irrelevant details. It begins with uh, the ancestry of Kish. Then we have Saul's Tinder profile. And then we have a Google Maps description of a fruitless hunt for donkeys. And all this to bring us to that place where the servant of Saul urges him to seek out information from the seer who we know to be Samuel. And in this, we discover that in the ordinary, the seemingly drab dramas of every day, God is at work. He is drawing the miraculous out of the mundane. God is ordering the events of everyday life for his great and glorious purposes. There is no such thing as just another day in God's creation. 
And I want to look at uh, three characters I believe we can find in this story. I want you to look with me at Saul, uh, at Samuel, and then at the Savior. Uh, And as we look at Saul, we're going to think about the goodness of God's providence. In Samuel, we see the greatness of God's sovereignty. And in the Savior, we see the grandeur of God's mercy. So we're going to begin by looking at Saul, the man who lost his donkeys but found a throne. Now, as a candidate for a king, he seemed to have a great deal going for him. He was very tall. He stood out from the crowd, head and shoulders above the rest, and he had the looks. He was a very handsome man. But the outward appearance, often so impressive to us, is is not what God is looking for. It's not his primary criteria for the choosing of an individual. Let me tell you, on one occasion I uh, heard of a, a minister who preached a soul nominee for a congregation. And he was not a man of great stature. And he, he, everybody thought, well, obviously this guy's going to get the church. But uh, he, he preached on the Sunday and he, he didn't receive the call. And when I later discussed this with some of the members of the congregation, they said... We have a really big pulpit, and he really just didn't fill it. He, he's just too small. He didn't look right in our pulpit. And the truth is that sometimes we are judging by mere outward appearance. But we should understand that that's not how God works. Isaiah 53, in that beautiful portrait of the suffering servant, we read these words in verse 2. He grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him or no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus foretold in the Old Testament, he was not outwardly appealing to the human eye. But then it's not the outward impression That should guide us. You know, again, later in the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel 16, a very familiar verse to you, where God speaks to the the prophet and says, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So we're often easily misled by outward appearances. We often don't see past the skin at the real heart of the issue. And and notice that we're told nothing about the heart of Saul here. We're also told that he had a a very uh, well-recorded Jewish lineage. Five generations of his family of that tribe of Benjamin are listed for us. But he was from Benjamin. One commentator says that that Benjamin was a tribe awash with sin. If you read back in Judges chapters 18 and 19 of the sins of Gibeah, you realize that, that Benjamin was a sinful tribe. And going back even further, back to Genesis 49, Jacob, as he was about to to die, was uh, prophesying the future of his sons. And he made it very clear that the kings of Israel would come from the descendants of Judah, not from the descendants of Benjamin. We also discover three clues about Saul's feelings here. 
Firstly, we see that when there was no success in the hunt for the donkeys, Saul was for giving up. He couldn't take initiative. He hadn't any bright ideas. It was his servant who intervened and urged him uh, to think again. And as we move into the story of Saul's reign, you'll find that there are times when he should be active, he should be taking initiative, but he is immobilized. He does not uh, move when he ought. Secondly, we discover that, that, it's, that the servant who, who urges Saul to go and consult with Samuel, Saul makes excuses. He tries to wriggle out of it, tries to find something else to do, but It's the servant who wants him to pursue God's spokesperson. And again, as we look into the story of Saul, we'll see that he's someone who, yes, on occasions listens to what God says, but other times he'll tailor God's word to suit his own circumstances. And then there's a third little clue given about Saul's downfall in chapter 9, verse 13, where it speaks of how the people will not eat until Samuel comes because he must bless the sacrifice. These people knew to wait for Samuel. Later on, we'll see that Saul could not be so patient. His impatience brings him into sin. But for all this man's shortcomings, God has caused the events to unfold to bring Saul to a place where he meets with Samuel. And therefore, and there in that time, he's set apart to become the king of the nation. We see God's providential care in all these events, in all this twisted tale that brings these two men together. And question 11 of the Shorter Catechism asks, what are God's works of providence? And it gives the answer. God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. This God that we come to worship is a God who knows every sparrow that falls, who knows all the hairs on our head, and they are numbered. Every detail in our lives is known to God, and he overrules in them all. The Heidelberg Catechism gives a a more thorough answer to the question about God's providence. It says, God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power, whereby as with his hand he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. So do you know the providence of God in your life, his goodness wrought in your life. Oh yes, it raises all kinds of questions. Do we have freedom to make decisions? Yes. Does God control and so cause evil? No. Uh, He, as the Westminster Confession tells us, directs and disposes all things. Does that mean that he's really the author of sin? No. And those questions all need more lengthy answers and the confession does provide them. But we must ensure that we understand the God we worship is truly God. And we must understand that he's a God who, in his providence, brings good into the lives of his people. But if a Benjaminite is not supposed to reign on the throne, 
And if Saul is not ideally suited to be king, why then does he end up ruling over Israel for 40 years? Well, that's a good question. I'm glad you asked it. Uh, and we find something of the answer in, in verse nine, or 17 of chapter 9. Verse 17. Samuel saw, saw Saul. The Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. It is he it is who shall restrain my people. What does that mean? He it is that shall restrain my people. The people had asked for a king, and God provides for them a king. He's far from perfect. His his reign is marked with repeated failures. But his presence on the throne restrains the demands of the people. And they would learn through Saul and through his equally deficient successors that no human ruler can give them what they really want. That which only the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus alone, can provide for them. The psalmist knew this. He writes Psalm 146, verses 3 and 4. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. And the psalm concludes, the Lord, the Lord will reign. Forever. So we see Saul and God's good goodness and his providence. Secondly, we see Samuel. Samuel, a man who is held in honor because all that he says comes true. And we discover through the words of the narrator of our story that, that God is in constant communication with Samuel. And he is teaching him what is about to unfold. And in all the seeming happenstance of the events that are portrayed before us here, Samuel knows what's going on. God has revealed his plan to him. Literally, it says in the Hebrew that God has uncovered Samuel's ear. And in the middle of of this section, we find a, a little part that really should be in brackets, verses 15 to 17 of chapter 9. For there we're given a glimpse into the workings behind the scenes of our God. That we might understand that he has this sovereign rule over all things. He's already been preparing his prophet for what's about to unfold so that his hand will be known. What's happening? Lost donkeys, a little silver coin turning up in a pocket, the, the meeting of women who have come out to draw water. All this has been determined by God that Saul and Samuel might meet. And in the ordering of these events, we see the greatness of God's sovereignty. Yes, the people declared that they no longer wanted to have God as their king. They wanted an ordinary, everyday, just like everybody else sort of king. But just because the people rejected God's right to rule in their lives did not mean that his authority and rule came to an end. And we have to understand the people we see day by day around us, they have no desire for God to rule or reign over them. They want to live in disobedience to his laws and purposes, and yet he still remains king of heaven and of earth. He is God, and he does reign over all. Perhaps you've heard me say before, but I 
I do marvel sometimes at those who would call themselves good loyalists or royalists, but they, they don't know the words of our national anthem. And I watch them very carefully, and I note on a number of occasions, they'll sing, God save our queen. When, of course, the correct words are, God save the queen. And it's helpful to understand the difference that our majesty does not reign because of our choosing of her. She is not reigning at our invitation. No, because of the sovereign right that's been given to her, because of her royal heritage, she reigns over us. And whether people acknowledge her authority or whether they want to dismiss it or deny it does not stop the fact that she is the queen. And so she remains. And God is the king of all creation. Whether people acknowledge him or not, he reigns unchallenged on the throne of heaven. He overrules in the affairs of men. And in these days of of shifting political sands, it's good to know God is still on the throne. In Saul's circumstances, we see the providence of God, how events just happen to lead Saul to Samuel. But now we see that God is overruling, predetermining, predestining these events. As you read into into chapter 10, we find that every little detail is foretold. Such a, a long and detailed list of things that are going to happen. You're going to meet two men by Rachel's tomb. Uh, and, and they're going to talk to you about the donkeys and about uh, your father's anxiety. Then you're going to go up to uh, the oak at Tabor. And then you're going to see these people. One's got three goats. One's got three loaves. One's got a skin of wine. And the man with the three loaves is going to give you a loaf of bread each. And, and all these little details. Even we know the instruments in the band. Every detail outlined in advance. God has a plan and his plan is unfolding. There was a plan for Saul's life and God has a plan he's unfolding for your life. And if Saul could learn to live in dependence upon and in obedience to God, the plan that would unfold would be for his good and for the good of the nation. But as we'll see, he rebels and resists, and things turn out badly. He fails to fulfill the plan that God had for him. It's around the year 1600, Andrew Melville, once principal of the University of Glasgow, one time moderator of the Church of Scotland, he's uh, recorded as having grabbed the sleeve of James VI of Scotland, James I of England. A serious risk to grab a king by the sleeve. But not only did he grab him by the sleeve, he said to him that James was God's silly vassal. Now, silly in those days meant helpless rather than foolish or stupid as it might today. But Melville said to the king, Therefore, sir, as diverse times before I have told you, so now again I must tell you. There are two kings and two kingdoms in Scotland. There is King James, the Lord of this commonwealth. And there is Christ Jesus, the King of the church, whose subject James the sixth is, and of whose kingdom he is not a king, nor a lord, nor a head, but a member. We have kings, we have queens, we have presidents, we have prime ministers, rulers in every age, and they each need to learn that they are God's silly 
vassals. They need to live in daily dependence upon him for every decision, for every action. We know Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. God remains sovereign. Finally, we want to look at the, the, the Savior and the grandeur of God's mercy. Many times we cannot see God's hand at work in the world. But we must know for sure that he is always engaged in his great purpose, and that is to see. Verse 16 of chapter 9. God speaks to Samuel and says, Tomorrow by this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. God hears the cries of his people in their times of difficulty. William Blakey writes in his commentary on 1 Samuel that God is never impassive or indifferent to the sorrow and suffering of his people. The people had rejected his rule. They had asked that he no longer be in control. They had sinned against him. But we must understand that our sins do not exhaust the fountain of God's mercy. And while we can't excuse or or brush past the seriousness of the sin of the people of Israel in the rejection of God as king over them, we must see that set against the the black backdrop of the sins of men and women, God's mercy shines with brightness as never before. You know the beautiful words of Psalm 103, verse 8. That the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. God is a God who hears the cries of his people. God is a God who comes to them to see it. And the king of heaven knew that people in every generation would reject his rule over them. And so in every age he sent clues to tell what would yet be. The foretelling of the coming king. The king that would be given to an undeserving people. But he would be born of a virgin in the city of David of Bethlehem. That his beard would be ripped from his face. His back would be torn and beaten as he was whipped and scourged. That he would be taken and nailed to a tree and be crucified. That that crucifixion would take place between two thieves. And that that the soldiers would play dice for his clothes at the foot of the cross. That not a bone of his body would be broken, but in his death, he would be placed in the tomb of a rich man. God shows his sovereignty in the foreknowledge of these events. That we might see his great plan for salvation unfolding in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Centuries before it happened, we were told that a king would come and find a donkey. And he would ride that donkey and he would go into his city. And he would be rejected by those over whom he came to rule. 
And he would go to the cross and die there for their sins. And it is to him and him alone the right to rule belongs. And it is in him and him alone that salvation is to be found. And it is before this king, the king who sees us in our suffering and comes to save us, that every knee must bow and every tongue confess him to be Lord and Savior. May we know this king, love and serve him, and give our lives to the one who loved us so much he gave his life for us. Let's pray together. Father God, we ask that you would remind us afresh of your goodness and love to us in our in your providence toward us day by day. We have much and we ought to be thankful to you for every blessing we receive from your hand. You are a good father who delights to give good gifts to your children. May we trust you more. May we have confidence in you. May we know that while this world seems so uncertain, so unsure, you are on the throne. You are the sovereign ruling over all things. And may we, as your citizens, serve you effectively, building your kingdom, seeing hearts and lives turn to you. Thank you that you saw us in our need. You sought to save us through Jesus Christ, that sacrifice beyond compare. May our allegiance be to him wholeheartedly, holding nothing back, allowing him to rule in our hearts, control our thoughts and actions, guide our days, so that we might make much of you in this world until we see you face to face and there to serve around your throne for all eternity. To the glory of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.